Hello and welcome to the Big Blue Box podcast. This is episode two. My name's Gary. Thank you very much for joining me. And coming up in this show, we've got some news roundups. I've got an interview with Neil Perryman, who's the author of the book Adventures with the Wife in Space. That's very cool. And we look at this episode's classic episode, which is Spearhead from Space. So without further ado, let's get into the news. So quite a sad one to kick off uh, for the news this episode. Unfortunately, we've got a couple of uh, a couple of deaths from uh, cast members from the classic era. Uh, first up is uh, Kate Amara. Uh, if you're into the classic stuff, you'll know that she uh, featured as the Rani um, back in 1985, uh, the first episode, The Mark of the Rani. But then she popped back up again um, for a Sylvester McCoy, uh, Time and the Rani in 1987. And she also made another appearance as well uh, in 1993, actually, for the Children in Need spoof. Uh, dimensions in time which is the uh, uh, which was the Doctor Who um, uh, comedy that they filmed uh, in EastEnders uh, for children in need so that's pretty sad um, and I'm, pr- I'm pretty sure that um, there'll be some screenings of of her episodes um, now that Doctor Who is on a few channels now it's on BBC Three um, it's on Watch and it's now on the Horror Channel as well so if you, if you haven't seen um, any episodes featuring the Rani um, they're pretty good um, but Kate O'Mara was very very good in those uh, so uh, go and check those out uh, secondly uh, Mr Glyn Jones unfortunately he died on the 5th of April he's 82 um, he was one of the only guys I, I think he was one of the only guys that actually wrote and appeared um, in Doctor Who uh, he wrote the first draft for uh, the Space Museum back way way back um, uh, officially series 2 um, which was rewritten um, shortly after, uh, but his his script was mainly left intact. It was, I think, it was just a, more of the more of the humorous parts which were which were chopped out, which I don't think he was too happy about. But um, but he is credited as a writer on that. Um, and then he returned as an actor. Um, he played a character called Kranz um, in the Centauran experiment back in uh, 1975. So a couple of losses there for Doctor Who, um, which is never a good thing. But uh, but moving on, um, Mark Gatiss uh, has been penned to write uh, two episodes for uh, the new series. Um, well, for the new Doctor anyway. Um, it's been around on Twitter and on a few sites recently uh, that he would uh, write a couple of episodes. And he kept quiet about it for a while. Um, and then he pops up to say that yes he will be writing a couple of episodes which is good um, but he did say that they won't necessarily be for series 8 so that was interesting uh, so I know that he's definitely writing um, one episode for series 8 with Peter Capaldi uh, which is going to be episode which was it? episode 3 um, which will fall into the third production block um, which also leads me on to another casting uh, update um, a guy called Tom Riley um, you might know him if you watch uh, a TV series called um, Da Vinci's Demons uh, he actually plays Leonardo Da Vinci in that so he's going to pop up in that episode which Mark Gatiss is writing and it's pretty clear from what he said that we won't actually see another episode from him um, inside of series 8 so whether that will be Peter Capaldi uh, still with us um, for series 9 and onwards I'm not sure but um, yeah Mark Gatiss has wrote a couple of good uh, episodes I reckon um, Victory of the Daleks was very cool 
I really enjoyed that. Um, and of course, he wrote the docudrama um, Adventure in Space and Time for the 50th anniversary last year, which was absolutely brilliant. Uh, so if he can write a couple more episodes, that's going to be a good thing. Um, which leads me on to uh, another bit of news, actually. the um, That docudrama has actually been nominated um, for a BAFTA, uh, an Adventure in Space and Time, um, for Best Single Drama in the main television awards. So that's going to be, the winners of that are going to be announced on Sunday the 18th of May. So fingers crossed that Doctor Who can land um, can land an award there. Um, moving on, uh, Doctor Who magazine, talking of awards, uh, Doctor Who magazine is also, um, has also been in the awards uh, scene. Uh, they've won the uh, Ace Press Award uh, for um, circulation excellence by a monthly magazine. Um, so that's really good news. Doctor Who magazine is still going. It's a very, very cool magazine, actually. If you're, uh, Even if you're slightly into Doctor Who, it's a really good read. They normally have um, interviews with with uh, with really good people in there. This, m- this month's episode, sorry, this month's edition, uh, it's got Paul McGann, so that's a really good read. And it's a really good magazine in terms of variety as well. It's not just all, uh, all stories and stuff like that. It's got like a, a, a comic... It's got a comic section. It's got, um, it's got a, a classic era section. It's just full of really cool stuff. So, if you don't subscribe to Doctor Who magazine, um, and you're into Doctor Who, I definitely advise that. Uh, next bit of news: Forbidden Planet have released some very cool T-shirts, which you can pre-order, and I think they're out next month or the end of this month, um, if memory serves. And they look very cool. They're mainly focused on um, Capaldi, obviously, and um, they're they're called a couple of them um, are just basically vector shapes. They're not they're not like a photo of Beta Capaldi or anything like that. They're uh, they're they're a very cool design. Um, but one of them has got um, one of them called Vector Lineup is actually uh, just three uh, three shoulders and headshots of Tennant, Smith, and Capaldi, which is very cool. Uh, so head over to Forbidden Planet, and you'll be able to pre-order those. And I'll be picking up the Vector Lineup one. I would have thought. Uh, so that's cool. And last bit of news: um, if you're into the music of Doctor Who, there's a new box set that's coming out. Uh, I think it must be due out the end of the end of May because they're taking pre-orders for it um, from the 25th of April up to the 9th of May, and that is the uh, the Tardis edition of the Doctor Who soundtrack, which goes all the way back to series one, an episode one in fact, an unearthly child right through up until the 50th anniversary it's a huge box set and the TARDIS edition it comes in um, in a, a specially built uh, wooden TARDIS with the doors open and then you've got all of the uh, CD slip cases and stuff like that it looks very very cool and I'm, I'm I'm sure I read somewhere that the light on top of the TARDIS actually works as well and it's got sound effects when you open the door and it's a monster um, a monster box set it literally has got all the music all the way through Doctor Who, including the uh, made-for-TV movie with Paul McGann as well. So you can pre-order that from 10 a.m. Uh, UK time on the 25th of April, and pre-orders will end on the 2nd of May. Sorry, at 10 a.m. There's no pricing on this yet. I'm I'm expecting it to be um, a little on the pricey side, if I'm honest, because it does look because you get so much music. I think it's got. Uh, one, two, three, four, five, six, nine, about 10, 11 discs 
um, and it's chock a block full of music all the way through uh, Doctor Who history. So, and the the Tardis edition as well, um, because because they advertise it as a as a Tardis edition. I am assuming that there's going to be a regular edition that you where you don't get the uh, the the Tardis display box and all that kind of stuff. So I'm I'm assuming you're about to buy the standard one, but yeah, I, I think it might be a bit pricey. But if you like the the music of Doctor Who and you're into all that, then it, it will be a worthwhile purchase. If you if your other half or a good friend is in really likes the music of Doctor Who, this would be the perfect present. So any birthdays or anniversaries coming up, and you're just stuck on what to get your your better half if they're a Doctor Who fan, um, then this would be this would be a cracker. They're a really good present. Head over to DoctorWhoMusic.com where you'll be able to pre-order it via way of um, Silver Screen Records. So that pre-order will go up on 10 a.m. on the 25th of April. Back in episode one, I told you that I interviewed uh, Neil Perryman, who's the author of the book Adventures with the Wife in Space. It was really cool um, catching up with Neil and um, asking him about the book and life in general and Doctor Who. So let's uh, take a listen. So thank you very much to Neil for joining me on this episode. Uh, he is the author of Adventures with the Wife in Space. This is a fantastic book that I've been, I've read it probably, um, I'm on my second read through, so uh, that's, <laughs> that's really how good this book is. Um, and You're Very kind. <laughs> um, yeah, because I can relate to the story so much. I think a lot of, uh, a lot of couples, um, especially guys who are into Doctor Who and their wife not so much, I think they can relate to this story. Uh, pretty much word for word so uh, thank you very much Neil how are you doing I'm fine Gary thanks for having me on the show no problem at all so I thought I'd um before we kick off with some questions um do you want to just tell our listeners who haven't read the book or not aware of the project um just briefly what it's about and how it came about it's basically uh, the story about uh, this crazy idea I had one day which was to make my wife who's not a big fan of uh, Doctor Who especially old Doctor Who she's never really seen any old Doctor Who she, she quite liked the new series and I thought, um, wouldn't it be good to get a fresh perspective on the programme from somebody who wasn't a fan? And um, I asked it to watch every single episode with me of the classic series, including the ones that didn't exist. And then I blogged about it, and uh, it seemed to become quite popular. And um, there's a book that spun out of that, which is sort of the background story to our relationship and uh, the impact of watching Doctor Who has had on it. And that's it in a nutshell. <laughs> so that, Yeah, so in a nutshell, you've used your wife as a guinea pig. Yeah, uh, basically. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so um, okay, so that in a nutshell, it's basically you and your wife. You're checking out every single episode from the classic era, including the ones that were potentially lost. Yeah. Um, okay, so just focusing on you for a second, then, as a Doctor Who fan, um, it, from reading from your through your book and stuff, it's obvious that from a very young age, probably as long as you can remember, you've been a Doctor Who fan. Um, has there any other show that you've watched had this much of an impact on you, do you think? Or is it just, is it, are you a Doctor Who guy or is there any other thing that you, you're into? I, I love all sorts of television, especially um, television from the 70s. I, I seem to be fixated on that era. Uh, okay. even, stuff I wouldn't have, even stuff I wouldn't have been allowed to watch at that time. I just think it's the golden age of television, the 1970s. But Doctor Who is a, such a special place because it lasted for so long. There's no right. other programme that sort of travelled with me through my life. So if, if you know what I mean, like... I was into Blake Seven when that was on, but that was only four years of my life. It wasn't 
44 years of my life, if, if you know what I mean. But uh, there's nothing quite like Doctor Who. And um, I think that's the appeal of it, really. There's, there's, there's a kind of different episode or a different feel or era for whatever mood you might be in. You might want a comedy or a drama or, or something exciting or uh, something a bit more thoughtful and surreal. There's something for everybody within that uh, spectrum of Doctor Who, and I think that's why it has a big impact. So I, I guess that's one of the reasons why it has lasted so long, because the show does offer something for everybody and it literally regenerates itself every, every once in a while. Yeah, that's it. There's no other programme that can do that. I think the closest thing you've got is James Bond, but they don't even, you know, uh, address that issue of being the same character or, or, you know, it's the only programme that can do it within the narrative and reinvent itself, continually reinvent itself and reflect the time that it was being made in. And I always feel that watching Doctor Who allows fans to sort of time travel themselves and it allows them to time travel through their own past and, uh, you know, the nostalgic aspect of it when you're watching a Tom Baker, you can't just watch it to, for the drama. You've also got the nostalgic uh, aspect, uh, if you saw it when it originally went out, that is. OK, so, yeah, I, I agree with you. So would you say that if there are any Doctor Who fans that have been watching the show since it came back in 2005, mm-hmm. would you urge them to go back and check out some of the classic era? Yeah, I, I I think so, definitely. I mean, it's not going to be to everybody's taste. Um, you're going to have to cherry pick, I think, the best episodes to show somebody. I wouldn't recommend starting from the beginning like I did and watching re- reconstructions of episodes that didn't exist. But there are some classic episodes out there which I think will not only appeal to the fans of the new series, but they'll also be able to see that it's in, it's exactly the same programme at its heart. Um, for example, City of Death, which is a famous Tom Baker one set in Paris, I think it has that sort of playful aspect and that uh, and the comedy aspect to it that I think fans of the new series will immediately latch onto. And I think it's, I find it hard to believe that there are people out there who wouldn't be curious to see what these other Doctors look like if they've invested all this time in the in the three Doctors we've had since the series came back. I find it hard to believe that people wouldn't at least want to go back and have a look at some of the old stuff, especially now that the program is trading so much on its past. Sure, I mean I, I'm a good example of that. I got into Doctor Who. Um after it came back in 2005. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm a, a newbie. Uh, I hate the word who. Yeah, yeah I'm, a, I'm a newbie who fan, if you like. So, But I have been going back and looking at the uh, the classic stuff, and I've probably got about half a dozen, yeah. maybe uh, nine or ten classic who, uh, classic who episodes. And, uh, I, I what, love them. What, what decision did you... Well, I mean, how did you um, choose the ones that you've been watching? Is it um, other fans telling you? Yeah, well, um, originally, because I... Obviously, I've been aware of the the classic Who stuff, um, and I just jumped on a couple of forums and just asked a really open question. For somebody mm-hmm. who hasn't checked out any of the the classic Who, what would you recommend? Yeah. And there mm-hmm. were a few favourites that popped up all the time um, that people recommended, like Genesis of the Daleks, mm-hmm. um, Pyramids of Mars, and to be honest with you, they were yeah. mainly the the Tom Baker Davison ones. Yes, 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 and. Uh, so I've got the the ones that I, I currently own are uh, predominantly uh, Tom Baker and Peter Davison. I've got the Unearthly Child at the very beginning <laughs> uh, and a few others, but um, I love them. So I'm gradually going through and just picking up a couple of discs every month now. So uh, I mean, um, I'm really jealous of um, someone in that position. You've got that whole 26 years to, to enjoy. <laughs> you know, it's great. It must be great. It's like watching Breaking Bad from the start. <laughs> Well, maybe not quite as good as that, but... <laughs> not as quite, yeah. Um, yeah, so a lot of... Actually, that's a good point. A lot of people do say that. Um, they wish that mm-hmm. they could be in my shoes to check out the uh, mm-hmm. all, all of this stuff from a fresh, new perspective, if you like. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, so so as you got into um, as you got into recording the show and doing the blog and stuff, stuff like that, um, mm-hmm. I would imagine that 
your relationship with Sue would have taken a different turn? Do you you must have spent a lot of time together if you were, were watching an episode every single day? Yeah, it yeah. was elite. Well, we tried to. Sometimes we watch more. Sometimes real life got in the way. But mm-hmm. I think one of the reasons why I wanted to do it. I mean, to be honest with you, I didn't think it would last much longer than the first couple of series. I think the first couple of stories. I, th- I thought she'd get bored of it or you know <laughs> run out of steam. I wasn't really expecting her to go all the way through. But one of the reasons I wanted to do it is because I wanted to do something with Sue. Normally, our projects have always been something that we've done independently, like Sue's into woodwork and DIY, and she does all that, and I'm into my blogging and my science fiction, and I do all that. So it was it was nice to actually bring those, you know, come come together as a team and do something together. And I think that was one of the one of the reasons why we did get to the end because we kept each other going, <laughs> even through the difficult moments. You supported each other as a as a marriage yeah. should do. <laughs> yeah. Cool. So that did that did you feel any pressure though to carry on? So as the blog got more and more popular, and mm. you found yourself with more followers and more more mm. people checking it out, did you feel any any pressure not to let anybody down and, and keep yeah, going? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I did. I don't think Sue did. Sue didn't find it difficult at all. I think the reason why Sue didn't find it difficult is because she didn't know what was coming. Whereas I knew that it might be a particularly long ten-parter or a, <laughs> a, a massive run of reconstructions that we'd have to sit through. So I, I got a little bit more down about it than she did. And there's certain areas of the show I'm not a particular fan of. I mean, uh, I never used to like Pertwee very much. But having watched them with Sue, I can sort of appreciate John Pertwee a lot more now. So, um, yeah, there were times I felt a bit of pressure. And sometimes we had a little bit of a rest so we could recharge our batteries. But on the whole, I'm really glad that I did it. Cool. Speaking of John Pertwee, the last classic one that I watched was Spearhead from Space, and uh, yeah, I thought that's I thought a, excellent. Yeah, yeah, that's a great one, Spearhead from Space. That's one of the few stories that Sue gave ten out of ten to. I oh, really. <laughs> yeah, oh, cool. yeah. She gave three stories ten out of ten, and that was one of them. But having said that, I think the reason she gave it ten out of ten is because she'd watched yeah, all these black and whites and all these reconstructions, and all of a sudden she had a nice four-parter in colour, and I think she would have given anything ten out of ten at that point. Oh, cool. <laughs> Okay, so has um, as Sue changed her mind a little bit on Doctor Who now, now that she's seen everything? And to be honest, she probably knows more about Doctor Who than your average watcher now, but has her mm-hmm. opinion changed on it much at all? Well, she's probably one of the few people that have sat through every single episode, including the ones that don't exist. I mean, I know a lot of Doctor Who fans who describe themselves as hardcore Doctor Who fans. They would never describe themselves as a Whovian, otherwise I'd disown them, but they, <laughs> they, they, they haven't sat through all the reconstructions and there are certain episodes that they haven't even sat through. And to be honest, when I started this, there were episodes I hadn't seen either. So actually going through this process made me watch some episodes I'd never actually seen before, especially from the William Hartnell and Patrick Troughton era. Um, but yeah, I think Sue appreciates the old show now. I think she understands why I'm so obsessed with it. And... Um, uh, and I think it's also enhanced her enjoyment of the new series because now when she watches episodes that trade on the history of the old series, especially towards the end of uh, uh, Matt Smith's uh, tenure, um, she really appreciates all those references now and she gets them. So, yeah, I think it's been a good experience for her as well as me, yeah. Yeah, I was going to come on to that because I think there's um, you've, you've got a video on your on your site. It's an interview with uh, Sue. I think you're conducting the interview. Yeah. And... Um, she did. She does actually mention that she has a, a, a more appreciation for the newer stuff now, mm-hmm. um, and I can definitely relate to that because the show has got so much history. Yeah, um, you know, so much to draw from. Uh, it really does give you a, a bit more of a, a larger mm-hmm. viewport, if you like, when you're watching the newer stuff as well. Yeah, it's um, it's, in, it's interesting because when the show first came back in 2005, for the first year or so, they went to great pains to not really connect with the old series at all. I think I don't think Gallifrey was even name-checked for two years. Right. But now it just seems like all of the past 
you know, the great intelligence of all the villains to come back, they bring a, back a villain that didn't actually exist in any episodes <laughs> at the time. Um, <laughs> but right. the great thing is Sue knew who that villain was. Uh, and I didn't, you know, I mean, I'm sure she would have enjoyed it anyway, but the fact that she knew it was connected, she kept expecting the Yeti to turn up. That was the only problem. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I think it's been, it's been interesting to see, especially in the 50th anniversary year, how much the programme traded on its past, which I think is a good thing. Definitely, definitely a good thing. Uh, so with um, we've taken with moving from the blog through to the book. Uh, what was your what was your process for for taking what you what you put down on an internet blog essentially into into written form into into a into a book? Mm-hmm. Well, uh, well, I, that was the challenge because um, I think people expected me just to take the blog and stick it in the book. Right. And that would have that would have been the <laughs> that would have been the easiest thing to do. But um, a, a real publisher like. Uh, wouldn't have done that. That was something I'd, I'd have had to have done myself. Um, they were looking for something that had more, um, not so much mainstream appeal, but would, you know, you didn't have to be a, a hardcore Doctor Who fan or, you know, read the blog to, to, to get it. So really I was trying to go for a more universal uh, appeal and sort of talk about being a Doctor Who fan um, from from my perspective and then talk about how, they had a, how it had an impact on my marriage. And it was quite a tricky process to get that, that tone right um, so it could appeal to both fans of the program and people who probably didn't, you know, necessarily know know a lot about the classic series, especially. Okay, and did you have to approach more than one publisher? Was did you have any interest before this? Did uh, anybody want to work with you in particular, or did you have to did you have to hunt down a few publishers that would uh, no. work with you? Well, it was weird because I, di- I didn't plan on writing the book at all, and it was an editor who got in touch with me and um, who worked for the publishers Faber and Faber, and it was their suggestion that I turn it into a book. So it wasn't something I was planning to do myself and I wasn't searching out publishers or anything like that. Like I said, the only plan I really had was maybe at the end I'd self-publish it as an ebook, as, you know, the blog collected in an ebook. That was the, that, you know, I didn't have any plans beyond that. So I was very lucky I didn't have to go searching for anybody. <laughs> oh, well, that's very cool. Um, so did you, um, in terms of, of, of putting the book together in, in book form did mm-hmm. you have to go through and revisit all of the blog posts and all of your did you have to take notes on anything or did you have to the actual process of turning what well, i've got i've got a, a very cool blog mm-hmm. and um i've been approached you know to, to do this book did mm-hmm. you have to go through um maybe did you have to relearn on, on how to to write for for physical book or did you have yeah. to? yeah well yeah it's a tricky one that because i come from an academic background and most of my writing over the years has been academic papers and that is a completely different audience to uh, the audience I've been writing for in this book so yeah it took quite a while like I said to find the right tone and the right structure and the right approach because I could have started that book in a million different ways and it was quite hard that was the hardest part is actually narrowing it down into the best approach to tell you know a story that hopefully everybody can relate to so yeah it was tricky it was it was quite quite a challenge and did you have any? Did you have to proofread it with Sue? Oh yes, yeah, Sue. Yeah. What What would happen is I would I would write large chunks of it and then I would read it out to her. And uh, anything that she didn't like or disagreed <laughs> with would be edited out. And Sue wrote her own chapter as well, and she found that an interesting experience because I don't think she's done any writing of that nature before. And um, it's probably the funniest chapter in the book, actually. Yeah, I was going to say uh, Sue put a chapter in there, so she acted as kind of a as an editor as well. <laughs> Yeah, she sort of runs throughout. She's in the. She's all the way through the book. Um, she's either interrupting me or clarifying things for me, or, or like I said, writing her own chapter, her own perspective on what it was like when we met. Cool. So, the book aside, uh, going back to you as a as a Doctor Who fan for a mm-hmm. second, um, 
And uh, you, you're saying that you, you wasn't a fan of all of the classic uh, episodes. You had your favourite Doctors, perhaps, and your favourite mm-hmm. episodes. What's your what would, what would you say is your favourite classic episode? Well, that's and why? One, that, that one, that's really <laughs> tricky. Um, I sort of have two favourite Doctors. I've got Tom Baker, who's the Doctor of my childhood, and then Sylvester McCoy, who's the Doctor of when I just became an adult and started to get into fandom and sort of look at Doctor Who more than just a television programme. So I'm torn between... Ghostlight, which is a Sylvester McCoy story, which is notoriously um, difficult for some fans to understand. What was that light? He was so scared of it. Doctor, I can personally assure you, Mr. Fen Cooper is being made comfortable and will come to no harm. Only the madman may see the path clearly through the tangled forest. And then there's probably, oh, I don't know, Seeds of Doom. I've got a soft, soft, soft spot for the Seeds of Doom, which is a Tom Baker story. Uh, are you okay dressed like that? You, you don't seem to notice the cold. I haven't come 10,000 miles to discuss the weather, Mr. Mobley. Can I see the sick man? Yes, of course. Get on this way. Um, oh, okay. I've got very, very vivid memories of watching that one. Seas of Doom. Is that in the manor house with the uh, uh, the it, pods that come down? and yeah, yeah. It's the pods. It's the giant um, vegetables. <laughs> that's right, yeah. It starts off in the Arctic, doesn't it? Yeah, that's right. That's it's, right almost yeah. Like, it's almost like a two-parter and a four-parter joined together almost. You get this nice little two-part, which is like a thing from another world, um, set in Antarctica, and then you get a four-parter set in a stately home, which is, is insane. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, uh, as, I'm, as I remember, it stars, uh, at the time, the infamous Boise from Only Fools. That's right, John yes. Chalice. John yes. Chalice is in it. Uh, and again, The Caesar Doom is one of only three stories that Sue gave 10 out of 10 to. So she's got, uh, you know... Great taste. <laughs> wow, I was going to say that is you got good taste for because I yes. imagine she wasn't into Doctor Who that much apart from watching you watch it before. Yeah, she never she never had any you know she never sat down and watched it with me before before this point. I, I managed to hide Doctor Who from Sue for about twenty years. <laughs> cool. And what would you say is your worst Doctor oh. Who episode? <laughs> the thing is, even in the worst Doctor Who episodes, there's usually some kind of enjoyment you can get out of it of course it, yeah. It, yeah but very occasionally you do get one which is just very difficult i mean it's it, it's difficult to pick one out i think time and the rani was a bad one and the twin dilemma also both both for the same reason it's like when you're starting off a new doctor you want to hit the ground running and you want to drag the audience in with you you don't want to start with the worst possible story you can come <laughs> up with it just gets the era off to a bad start and those two episodes were just Oh, well, it's not something I'm going to put on DVD very soon, let's put it that way. <laughs> okay, and the since the show came back in 2005, yeah. um, are, there, are there any particular Doctors from the new era that you perhaps gravitate to? Any favourite episodes from the newer stuff? Right, yeah. Um, oh, uh, I like Matt Smith. Of all the three, of the three Doctors, I like Matt Smith the most. Okay. And I, I was quite resistant when I heard he had been cast because he's a small child. I mean, I'm <laughs> practically old enough to be his dad. Um, so that took a bit of getting used to. But um, I think Matt Smith has been the best of the three. And of all the episodes that I really like, I think Amy's Choice stands out for me. And The Girl Who Waited as well. They're, they're two excellent episodes from the new series. But there's been great episodes from all, all those new Doctors. Yeah, there has been for sure. And I, I assume that, uh, like my wife, your wife likes the David Tennant era. Yeah, yeah, my wife's a big <laughs> fan of David Tennant. Yeah. I mean, I'm not, I'm not that big a fan of David Tennant, but he has had some great stories. I think his best one for me was probably Midnight. I love that story. I mean, that's the sort of story they could have done in the classic series. You know, it didn't need huge special effects. It was essentially just people in a room 
talking and uh, mm-hmm. but really exciting at the same time. Yeah, for sure. And well, you mentioned that Matt Smith is probably out of the newer stuff. Matt Smith is probably your yeah. uh, your favourite Doctor. I, I kind of agree with you because, in my opinion, Matt Smith has a lot of traits from the classic Doctors. He's very yes. he's very Patrick Troughton sometimes and uh, a bit zany and stuff. Yeah, Sue said that when she watched Matt, um, Patrick Troughton. She said she was immediately reminded of Matt Smith and she could see the, the mannerisms, not just the bow tie, but also... Uh, the sort of the cheekiness of the persona at times as well so yeah it's interesting he's obviously been influenced by patrick Trout. definitely yeah so the hype machine's going pretty uh pretty fast and furious now for series eight and yep. uh, peter capaldi you looking forward to do to peter <laughs> yeah very much so because like i said um i've had a few doctors that have either been younger than me or the same age as me and this isn't really nice to go back to a doctor that's older than me <laughs> which is you know goes back to childhood again when you want a doctor that you can look up to and i think uh, capaldi is is he the oldest or he's nearly the oldest i think he's actually the oldest isn't he he's older than william hartnell william hartnell was a lot younger than he looked and um i think he's going to bring a different uh, energy to the to performance I think it'll be a little bit edgier maybe a little bit darker I don't think we'll have Peter Capaldi for very long I think he'll be a, a, a you know maybe a one year doctor like Eccleston but I think it's going to be one hell of a ride oh wow okay so I yeah so you think Capaldi will only be around for a short time then yeah I think yeah. he signed a short contract I think he's too big an actor Right, right. So I don't know. It depends how that first year goes. Perhaps there is an option to stay on. I, who knows? But uh, whatever happens, those 13 episodes, 14 episodes, whatever he does, um, should be tremendous because he's one of the greatest actors of his generation, I believe. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah very cool. As long as the language isn't uh, on par with uh, Malcolm Tucker, then... Uh... <laughs> I'm pretty sure the language will be t- toned down, but I'm sure that that, that energy, that uh, quite frightening energy, I mean, just the... The eyes reminded me of Tom Baker of in that short sequence that we saw at Christmas. Oh, you know, right. The, the yeah. wild staring eyes that that he looked, you know, as alien as he did when Tom Baker played him. Sure. And the uh, costume is a bit Pertwee-ish. Would you oh, say? it's yeah. very Pertwee, yeah. And it's um, again, it's it's not sort of screaming. I'm wearing a costume. It, it looks looks practical. It looks like something somebody would wear. Um, it's not like a Colin Baker or Sylvester McCoy or even a Peter Davison costume. It, it, it looks practical and he looks like he could walk into any environment and, you know, not turn heads. And that's really what you want. You don't want to be walking into a situation dressed as a cricketer sometimes, I'm sure. So, yeah, I'm looking, for, I'm looking forward to it. Cool. I saw on Twitter the other day, um, I think it was April the 1st, that um, you probably know what I'm going to say, but uh, yeah. yeah, Sue, I think Sue pranked you and said um, that she would start watching all the new stuff. Yeah. Uh, did, did did you fall for it at first? Well, no. I mean, I I knew she was she was winding me up because she did exactly the same thing the year before. So, oh right, okay. So and now she feels really bad if anybody on Twitter um, believed her, um, and some people did. I'm really sorry about that, but uh, there there are no plans to do the new series. Yeah, I I for one did believe you, and I was really? very I was very gutted when you said it wasn't going to happen. So. <laughs> you've, got to, you've got to check the date on these things we did it it's like the second time i've done it and i couldn't believe people fell for it i just assumed that people would know but no i don't think there's any point in doing the new series i think for various different reasons number one people are probably sick to death of us by now and secondly um sue loved the new series and it would just be sue saying how wonderful it is for for, for you know two years and um i don't know if there's any point in doing that maybe maybe the point would be if i if she blogged me doing it because i'm not a bigger fan of the new series as series so it would be like role reversal but no there's no plans to do that no plans right okay yeah i was um i did 
uh, checked the date uh, earlier on in the day and I did see a few <laughs> tweets with people saying, um, don't believe anything you read today. And I exactly I forgot it within a second and just walked right into it. So Oh, well, I, apolog- <laughs> I, I apologize. <laughs> uh, so you're actually in, um, uh, not with Doctor Who, but you're in the middle of another adventure with, uh, with Sue. This is uh, Blake Seven. Yes, our, our second and final adventure. <laughs> final, uh, final, yeah, definitely. This is the this will be the last one, but uh, yeah, we thought. To be honest with you, as we were coming to the end of Doctor Doctor, I was enjoying it so much. By that point, I sort of didn't want it to end, and there was a lot of pressure from people to carry on with the new series. And I thought, oh, I'm not doing that. And I thought, well, let's see if there's anything else that's similar to Doctor Who that you've never seen before, which had a similar kind of fan base. And and Blake Seven seemed the obvious choice. So we're almost halfway through Blake Seven at the moment. And um, that should finish in a uh, by by the summer, we hope. Okay, so is this the same setup as before? Has Sue not seen any Blake Seven before at all? No, never seen an episode. I think it's because well, she's a little bit older than me. So when Blake Seven went out, she was um, I think she was playing badminton um, <laughs> at the time, and there was no video recorders. And obviously, to be honest, with you, even if she had been at home, I don't think she would have watched it. It wasn't really her cup of tea. So it's great, really, because again, she knows nothing about Blake Seven, and she's coming to it with completely fresh eyes. And there's quite a lot of twists and turns coming up that she knows nothing about. I mean, obviously she'd go on Wikipedia if she wanted to, but she doesn't care enough to do that. So it's good in a way. She, she allows herself to be surprised. So, um, you know, I'm looking forward to certain episodes coming up, obviously. And what are you guys going to do when this finishes then? Because you'll have no projects in the public eye you'll have uh... no we're going to retreat back into our normal lives and sue's going to want well, sue wants to build a house again so I, it's sue's turn after this i think she's suffered enough with um, making uh, me waking her watch stuff and now i'm going to help her build a house so that's the plan that's the plan you're not going back to a caravan are you yeah probably oh you are yeah i, I can't believe i'm saying this but yeah i think like i never would have said that if you'd asked me a few years ago, but uh, <laughs> how can I turn her down? I mean, <laughs> I owe her big time for this, so uh, anything she wants. Anything, yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I totally agree. And um, so just to end then, is there um, anything we can expect from you in terms of just general sci-fi, Doctor Who, anything after uh, uh, Blake Seven's finished, or are you literally going to retreat and just enjoy everything quietly as a fan? Well, I don't know. I mean, I haven't got any, I haven't got any plans to do anything. Um, I, I find it hard to believe that when it's all over, I won't be tempted to write something about something online or maybe elsewhere. I don't know. But at the moment, I'm just focusing on getting Jet Blake 7 uh, finished. And, uh, you know, I've really been, you know, uh, uh, you know, the support's been great from everybody as well. So I just want to make sure that we go out with a bang. Okay, cool. Right, well, thank you very, very much for, for joining me, Neil. It's uh, been a pleasure talking to you. Thanks for having me. And uh, we will catch up on Twitter and uh, other social stuff in the near future, I'm sure. Thank you very much. Thanks very much. Bye-bye. Thanks again to Neil for taking time out to uh, talk to me about his new book and life in general and Doctor Who. That was very cool. You can pick up his book from all good bookshops. You can order it online on Amazon, The Book Depository, WH Smith. I really recommend that you pick the book up. It's a very, very good read. And uh, you can follow Neil on Twitter as well if you just do a search for at Wife in Space. And also be sure to check out his new project, Adventures with the Wife and Blake. So, moving on to um, our classic uh, Doctor Who episode. This is Spearhead from Space. Delighted, Miss Shaw. Delighted. What are you a doctor of, by the way? Practically everything, my dear. From what we can gather, you arrived last night in the middle of a shower of meteorites. Did I really? How terribly exciting. Well, objects from space, at any rate. 
You must realise that I can't let you go until I'm sure there's no connection. But I've no you. recollection of last night. That's most unfair. How could I have thought? What on earth are these? Those are bits of what the Brigadier thought might be a meteorite. Plastic? It's not thermoplastic, and neither is it thermosetting. And there are no polymer chains. That's interesting. I wonder what was inside. So John Pertwee's first story at The Doctor, released back in 1970, was written by Robert Holmes and runs for... Uh, four episodes, so it's not too long, and they're only 25 minutes each. This was the first episode um, of Doctor Who to be released in colour. If you've been watching the uh, William Hartnell and Patrick Trout and stuff, you're probably a bit fed up with black and white at that point. Um, although it didn't look too bad, it was um, in terms of visual quality and, uh, and, and viewing experience. Um, I would imagine back in the time in 1970 when you first saw uh, Spearhead from Space, it would have been very cool if you had a colour television. Um, so yeah, so I really enjoy Spirit from Space um, I quite like John Pertwee's performance um, I wouldn't say he's my favourite of the of the classic era uh, I do enjoy some of his some of the aspects that he brings to the role as the Doctor but I wouldn't say I wouldn't say that he's my favourite um, he doesn't, he certainly doesn't pip the post um, in way of uh, Tom Baker or Peter Davison or even Patrick Troughton uh, Patrick Troughton's very very cool um, but in any case, he is the third Doctor. He is uh, cemented in history throughout uh, throughout the the overall timeline of Doctor Who. So his first story, uh, Spearhead from Space. Uh, if you go back to the Troughton stuff uh, right at the end, uh, he's actually uh, he is actually forced to regenerate and is trapped on Earth. Um, he's 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 in exile. He's not allowed to leave. They tampered with the TARDIS, so he's stuck here. So the first time we see the Doctor. Uh, is the TARDIS um, is the TARDIS appear in the middle of a field somewhere, and uh, the Doctor just collapses. He just he falls out of the TARDIS, collapses on the floor, and that's the first time we see John Pertwee. So it's in, it's, and they they kind of keep that that same thing going on throughout Doctor Who, where post regeneration he's kind of he's just out of it. You know, he doesn't know what's going on. He's very weak. Uh, he doesn't doesn't know what's going on. So. So that, that that's how we were greeted with the first the first time we see uh, John Pertwee as the Doctor. We've also um, see a new companion as well uh, by way of Liz Shaw, played by Caroline John. She's noted down as an assistant um, in these early in these early episodes, but I'm going to call her a companion because, in my opinion, that's uh, that's more her role. And we also um, see once again the Brigadier. Uh, Mr. Alistair, Mr. Alistair Lathbridge Stewart. Uh, so he's back with us um, as head of unit, and this is the first time that uh, that we see um, more more of a an intimate relationship between between the brigadier and the doctor. Uh, he does pop up numerous times after this episode, and there is some very good uh, some very good banter between uh, him and the doctor, especially John Pertwee's character. So the story set up um, essentially if the we're treated to the nesting consciousness um, and, uh, and and its ability to to assimilate uh, plastics mainly it's got an affinity for plastics and in this one uh, they've kind of advanced it another level and uh, so instead of seeing the typical uh, shop dummy kind of look with the very obvious plastic face and stuff they're now um, they're now able to, to animate humanoid facsimiles so essentially they're just copying people um, which is very cool. I mean, uh, we didn't really see much of that. Um, if you think back to 
2005, um, the very first episode of Doctor Who when it came back in 2005 with Chris Eccleston. Uh, that that episode featured the Autons. So the Autons are the uh, the plastic uh, the plastic forms, if you like, which are controlled by the Nestine. And uh, this was Chris Eccleston's first first villain that he faced. And there's some Russell T Davis must have taken a lot of inspiration from Spearhead because there are very similar scenes, very key scenes. So uh, in Spearhead, um, a bit later on, there's a scene where it's a, a high street in some town somewhere. And all the shop dummies start coming to life. They break through the windows and start start attacking people. And it's very much uh, a straight copy in uh, the episode Rose, uh, that first one back in two thousand and five, where uh, the Doctor's trying to track down the uh, the nesting consciousness. And uh, while this is going on, he's controlling all the shop dummies, and they do the same thing where they break through the glass, through the window, and all that stuff. Uh, so it's it still has some. It still has a lot of inspiration for for current uh, or, or very recent Doctor Who writing, um, and the Autons are, are quite cool villains as well. They're um, they're a bit sinister because you, there's no expressions on their face. Uh, I'm talking about the 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 very obvious uh, plastic face uh, shop dummy uh, Autons. They're very um, because when you don't see anyone's expression or anything like that, it's it's quite sinister. You don't know what's what's hiding behind there. Um, yeah, so I'm, I'm I'm a fan of the Autons, really. They haven't really popped up that much in terms of repeat repeat uh, villains. If you look at things like Daleks, Cybermen, even Weeping Angels, they appear quite a few times. Um, but the Autons are, are, are a good Doctor Who um, uh, a, a secret, if you like, that they can probably pull out the bag at some point um, in the future because it hasn't been overused or, or overwritten in any of the episodes. So the 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 story runs through that there's uh, this nesting consciousness. It's um, it's uh, it's it's powering these autons, but it can't take a full physical form because it doesn't have a power supply. And we see these fall to earth um, in in form of meteorites at the beginning of the episode. And uh, one of them's captured by a, a poacher, a farmer type guy. So it stops them from. It stops the nesting from from completing its hundred percent physical form because it hasn't got this master power supply. And um, yeah, so the Doctor kind of he, he quickly gets up and running with with the story. He we see him for a while, probably about the first quarter of the story, maybe the third. Uh, we don't see him do much really. He's just trapped, well not trapped, but he's in and out of consciousness in in hospital because he's found just laying unconscious by the TARDIS. And uh, He's in hospital, and it's it's quite amusing watching the doctors uh, examine his body and find his alien anatomy. He's got two hearts that show up on the X-ray and some other stuff. Yeah, they comment on his respiratory system and, and and that kind of stuff, which is quite cool. But then, you know, he's quickly you know up and and up and into the game. So uh, he gets a new companion, like I said, with Liz Shaw, and between them, with the help of the of unit and the brigadier. They do. Uh, they do eventually track down um, the the source of uh, the source of evil, which is the Nestine. And uh, the story kind of flits in and out between. Uh, you've got these sub characters. You've got the guy who runs the who runs this plastic manufacturing factory. He, they've uh, recently they were just factoring toys, so kiddies, dolls, and stuff. And then it's quickly overtaken by or overrun by. Uh, 
by the Nestine and the Autons. And uh, it, all of this happens in quite a close proximity. I think when the when the Doctor lands in the TARDIS and where these meteorites come down, it's I think it's in Epping. Somebody correct me on that if I'm wrong. Uh, Epping in Essex somewhere. And this plastic factory is not too far away at all. So it's not that difficult for the Doctor to to track down and, and for Unit to track down where the source of this, uh, where the source of the problem is. And uh, they get kind of a, a big clue as well where one of the employees, um, one of the guy that did some some work at the factory turns up and he basically he gets sacked on the, he gets sacked on the spot and gets told to leave and he, he senses immediately that something isn't wrong and it's not until he 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 breaks back into the factory to try and find out uh, that he comes into contact with one of the autons and that you know literally scares the hell out of him uh, the people that he comes in contact with after he after he's done a runner happens to be unit so they have a pretty big clue that something isn't right at this plastics factory and uh then it's only a matter of time before uh, the Doctor and and uh, Liz and Unit uh, storm the place, take out the Nestine, and uh, all is well. So the Doctor's performance in this, um, like I said, I, I I kind of like John Pertwee. Uh, there's this there's this one thing I just can't get out of my head, and and it, and it's when he's in like a physical uh, struggle, or if he's in. Uh, if he's in a, a, a fight with somebody and that is when he's in a headlock or you know somebody's strangling him or whatever he does this face where it's just Wurzel Gummidge <laughs> that's the only that's the only way I can describe it It was it's meant to be a, a scene of you know of, uh, of like, oh crap the, the doctor you know he's being he's being strangled here whatever what, what's going on and then he pulls his face, his eyes go cross-eyed and he's got this strange kind of grimace, kind of grin thing. And as soon as I saw it, I just immediately thought of Wurzel Gummidge. And it made me laugh. It just <laughs> it kind of spoilt the scene for me a little bit. And it happens a couple of times uh, in this episode anyway, where he's just, it's just all, it's just totally Wurzel Gummidge. And yeah, so, I, you know, other than that, you know, he's, he's pretty good. He's uh, kind of a suave, you know, proper English gentleman as the Doctor should be, I guess. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, I'll probably have to watch a, a few more of Pertwee's Pertwee stuff. Um, the only other episode of his that I own is uh, Inferno, which is a cracking story, very, very good. And he's better in that than he is in, in this, admittedly, because that's once he's into the he's been in the role of the Doctor for a while now, and he's 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 very much found his found his rhythm and. Uh, and uh, that that's that's much better in my opinion. But I did I did still enjoy Spearhead from Space. It's very very cool. And uh, yeah, so I I picked it up on Blu-ray, and it's the only episode from the classic era that uh, appears um, well, which is capable of a HD uh, master and a transfer onto Blu-ray. All of the other um, classic stuff, which runs right through. Right away from the beginning, obviously the the first two series with uh, Hartnell and Troughton, which are the old black and white series, you wouldn't expect that to be uh, capable of HD anyway. But um, the the John Pertwee stuff was the first. Uh, his first episode was the first Doctor Who in colour as well, um, and so you wouldn't expect the, the the stuff prior to that to be capable of it anyway. But even right up until the Doctor Who movie, that wasn't done in HD either. And this was uh, the reason for that is at the time they were running very short. Well, the BBC was running very short on on just standard TV, uh, standard TV um, 
film. So they had to they had to dig out some proper uh, film stock, which was used for feature films at the time. And it it just looks absolutely just it's just so good on on Blu-ray. I was very very surprised. Uh, I'd read a couple of reviews prior to this. Uh, saying that people were very impressed with the picture quality, but it, I I kind of had this feeling before that, you know, how could how good can it be for something that was released back in 1970? You know, how good can the picture look? But uh, the I'm not, I'm not sure it was the BBC directly, but whichever company they chose to to do the HD master and and the transfer is just so good, especially some of the outdoor scenes. It looked like it was filmed last week. It, you know, it's it's very very cool. It's a really good restoration, and because um, I thought that the uh, a friend of mine has got uh, the DVD version of this, and I thought that looked very good, just on DVD. But on Blu-ray, it's another step up completely. You can really tell the difference. Uh, so if your if your collection consists mainly of of Blu-rays, if you're really into into HD, um, then definitely pick this up, um, especially if you've been watching the if you're going through the classic stuff and you're and you're you're fed up of black and white Doctor Who, then this will come bursting onto your screen with uh, with a very very good picture quality and really good color color um correction and all that sort of stuff. It's uh, very very cool. Uh, so that wraps up Spearhead from Space. I'm probably gonna I don't know. I'm not really into ratings and for on on this podcast or anything, but if I had to give it out of ten, I'd probably say it would be a seven, which I think is fair to say. And uh, I will have to check out some more Pertwee stuff as well as Inferno. So that wraps up Spearhead. Thank you very much for joining me for episode two of the Big Blue Box podcast. Thank you very much to Neil Perryman for joining me. That was a very, very good chat that we had and talking all things uh, Doctor Who. I would love to hear your thoughts on this podcast, so um, in iTunes, please leave a rating and leave a review, and you can also leave me some comments if you're listening on the site over at bigblueboxpodcast.co.uk. So I'd love to hear your thoughts. You can hit me up on Twitter at bigblueboxpcast. You can also find me on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash bigblueboxpodcast. Thank you once again for joining me, and I look forward to seeing you in episode three. So until then, alonzi! Z.